at Highlander because of understanding more about culture organizing that I was like really focused on the that this place the found the, the like the bottom of the triad mm-hmm. transformative wellness and healing and that all of that is needed in order for practice and policy to shift with the use of art and culture to shift it. Time was 1960, the place, the USA. That February 1st became a history-making day. From greens for all across the land, the news spread far and wide. And quietly and bravely, youth took a giant stride. Heed the call, Americans all, side by equal side. Brother, sit in dignity, sister, sit in pride. My name is Olivia Elizabeth Raymond. And my name is Robert Eric Shoemaker. And this is episode three of Rad South. We were just listening to Yardana Peacock, a healing justice practitioner, published author, and co-founder of Showing Up for Racial Justice and Liberation School South. In this episode of Rad South, we'll discuss exactly what Yardana was telling us about, cultural organizing through Southern activist institutions. The arts, including music, theater, and dance, have always provided avenues for expression, as well as for alternatives to oppressive and normative culture. Cultural organizing through the arts is one method of connecting people for the collective struggle for social justice, championed by Southern institutions like the Highlander Center and Apple Shop. Born Zilphia Mae Johnson, Zilphia Horton was a classical musician and community organizer who married Miles Horton, the co-founder of Highlander. She used music to rally labor and civil rights activists, famously transforming an African-American hymn into We Shall Overcome, the iconic civil rights protest anthem. Zilphia Horton is arguably the reason cultural organizing is a stated principle of Highlander Research and Education Center. Folk musicians Guy and Candy Carawan and song leader Bernice Johnson-Regan, who all have connections to Highlander, are but a few more examples of individuals who have used the arts to inspire social change. Here's Pam McMichael speaking to the creativity of cultural organizing and its integration at the Highlander Center. Yeah, well, you know, it was, it's was it been a through line for decades there, so it was easy to step into it. It, it, wasn't, um, it wasn't something any, we had to create, like, you know, when Zelfia Horton came years ago and then incredible people since then, you know, Jane Sapp, Guy and Candy Carolyn, Tufara Waller Muhammad, there's just been, you know, time and again, Highlander has if it ever lost that thread, would remind itself and like create structurally to be able to hold that. So, so it was both at Highlander in my years there, it was both a specific, it was both a frame and an umbrella that was integrated into everything we did and also a specific set of activities that, you know, it would be cultural organizing retreats or gatherings or listening sessions or, and I think that especially in the, like when, when, when what you're organizing against is oppression that physically and psychically and spiritually and mentally hurts us, that cultural organizing is both a powerful organizing tool and a way for us to heal and connect and share and and and, and touch our humanity and our and our humor and our hope, which is so, you know, like I used to tell like tell people like with this whole kind of like concrete thunder focus about how many did this and how many did that and what legislation got passed because of it. It's like you can't really measure hope, courage, and inspiration, but you can't do this work without it. 
Though Apple Shop's mission is not explicitly stated as cultural organizing, many contributors to Apple Shop's work have also found kindred work with Highlander. Social and political movements and the arts in the South have resulted in countless exchanges between these two institutions, which often recommend interested and like-minded people to one another. Here's Judy Jennings, a longtime Apple Shop supporter and Southern rad, speaking about her involvement with the shop. Connecting, it was almost like Apple Shop's a movement, not a cause. It's like people that respect Appalachian culture and mm-hmm. and want to, uh, they are on your side. They'll give you $5 or 50000 if they have it. I lived over there a year and then I came back. And then I didn't really know what I was going to do because I didn't have a plan. Mm-hmm. But I got a couple of jobs and one was working with the Humanities Council. Kentucky Humanities Council, and Apple Shop was forever applying mm-hmm. for money from the Humanities Council. <laughs> so when mm-hmm. I was 40, Apple Shop people came to me and said, we got a big challenge grant to build an endowment, so you know how to give out money, so we think you'd be good at uh, raising money, mm-hmm. so we want you to come and be our endowment fundraiser. And I was like, what? <laughs> for one thing, that made no sense but to me, but and I had never done anything like that, and um uh, but I was 40, I took a $7,000 pay cut, and I moved to Whitesburg. <laughs> yeah, and I kind of did it for my mom, because my mom really, truly, my mom, this is hard to say, but I really believe she lived her whole life being ashamed of being from Appalachia. Mm-hmm. And it didn't stop her, but I know she, like one time, this broke my heart, when I was teaching at Union, I came home and I brought some friends with me that were like my professors, I mean, not my professors, fellow professors. And she had, she always was really generous with fixing food and stuff to people. And so she fixed a big dinner and had it on the table and then she called me out. And she said, did I set the table right? I was like, yeah, it's fine, honey. But I like, I would never have thought she would, you know, but she didn't want to make any more, you know, show. So. So I said I was doing it, uh, I was telling my friends, I was like, I'm doing it for my mom. And then they were like, your mom wouldn't have wanted you to do that, <laughs> which is true. According to their website, Apple Shop's commitment is to explore the culture and social concerns of Appalachia and rural America from the perspectives of those who have lived it. This mission has led countless documentarians, radio enthusiasts, theater people, and interdisciplinary artists to the shop since its founding in 1969. Here's filmmaker Mimi Pickering. When I went to um, Charleston in January of 1971, then the man I was working for, Gibbs Kinderman, he had heard about Apple Shop, which was just getting started, and he is a really brilliant guy who um, was really interested in how media could be used for organizing and and um, he also you know was sort of it was a time when uh, both film and video was becoming less expensive and more accessible to people uh, regular folks and that's sort of what Apple Shop got started as a program to train young people in film and television skills and and there had been lots of um, reporters and television folks coming into the region and you know documenting the poverty and all of that during the war and poverty but really 
the people in the region had not had an opportunity to tell their own story right. and to use the, the means of making media. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of how Apple Shop started. And, and um, so Gibbs Kinderman was very intrigued by that idea and really wanted to explore you know, further how media could be used mm -hmm. to tell these stories and address issues. So he and I went to Whitesburg and um, met with folks at Apple Shop and um, he decided to produce a film, have Apple Shop produce a film about a community in McDowell County, West Virginia that had fought for better schools and better roads. Mm -hmm. It was kind of part of, a, of an education project that he was working on. So that's how uh, I got introduced to Apple Shop and I was um, supposed to participate to learn filmmaking. Mm -hmm. So um, I did and then ultimately it turned out I ended up sort of with the the responsibility for doing the film yeah. and um, and so I ended up making a short film and going back and forth between Charleston and Whitesburg and then ultimately um, the director of Apple Shop, Bill Richardson, asked if you know I would want to stay and keep working on projects. So in um, 1972, I I actually moved to Whitesburg. Um, well, I think it's um, it's using you know the um, cultural assets of a people and a place, and it and a lot of it is um, giving voice to people and stories and um, bringing people together around their either their shared cultural assets or their diverse kind of cultures um, and is really a way to build um, trust and community and ability for people to overcome uh, differences and different perspectives and and you know be able to move forward um, so we like at Apple shop right now we have a project called the Letcher County Culture Hub where we brought a really um, disparate group of folks in just Letcher County together who have very different opinions like of Trump and right. you know this that and the other but through talking about um, their own stories and their particular community and what um, what the values and assets they had and what they needed, they really came to realize they shared a lot in common and that by working together they could you know, elevate everybody's uh, communities. So um, I think, yeah, I think that it is very hard to, you know, organize people by just saying, you know, you've got to find ways to connect with people and to create trust and build from there. You know, so these whole issues like, um, and we've just, because of showing that Braden film, been talking about white supremacy mm -hmm. and things like that, but um, you just can't walk into a community of of white people in particular and say let's talk about white supremacy you know they're gonna be what no I, I didn't sign up for this you know 
but if you um, if you start telling stories and sharing stories, um, you know, I think people can find they they can relate to other people's experiences. They often can find something in their own that's similar, and that starts to build, you know, a greater understanding mm -hmm. and way to move into those really hard mm -hmm. issues. That there's still a, um, probably, in general, I mean, I think a lot of people who work in organizing don't recognize cultural organizing or don't understand it. I, I don't think it is completely, you know, accepted. Um, I think we at Appleshop for, you know, for most of our existence have really had to fight to get people to understand that, you know, the work that we do is, um, is movement building, you know, is part of uh, creating social change. So, you know, I think it's, with cultural organizing is still slightly fringe in terms of um, lots of organizing efforts. Appalachian identity is often misunderstood by those who are not from the region. Part of Appleshop's and Highlander's work has been to destigmatize Appalachian heritage and identity and to counteract the oppression of this rural region from outside entrepreneurial forces which dive in to reap resources and funds from the land. Well, it's a, I think it is, um, it's a place, definitely, and it is a pretty distinctive geography that, um, you know, I actually, came from, I spent a lot of time in the Sierra Mountains in California, which are really different, you know, but they're, they're all mountains, but it, it's amazing how different something called a mountain can be. And um, Eastern Kentucky's mountains are um, really amazing and unique and um, incredible. And so it's a beautiful place. It's also um, suffered some of the worst degradation by humans, like mountaintop removal mining is just mm -hmm. unbelievable that we would do that. Um, but it's also, it's a, uh, a really deep um, and wide kind of culture and that's um, really admirable and strong and had lots of, you know, wonderful qualities to it. Um, people who could, who were pretty self-sustaining, um, an area then when people did go into industrial work, they were, um, you know, developed a really strong class consciousness mm -hmm. about that. Um, so it's uh, it's a place, you know, it's home to me basically now. <laughs>
just uh, I think it um I think there's just a common misconception that rural people have to leave the region to uh, get to um to be connected to the rest of the world and like be radicalized and um and figure out how to move and change their communities um and that's just not true and it hasn't been my um experience and i'm I, have a, I know a lot of people who have similar experiences because we have some of the most radical, um, most community, most uh, community-rooted, place-based um, centers in the world here in this region, and we're really lucky for that. And Highlander and Apple Shop, you know, go over 80 years of Highlander and 50 years of Apple Shop um, have uh, the proof. The proof's in the pudding. That was Tanya Turner, development team member at Apple Shop and cultural activist at Apple Shop and Highlander. Both Tanya and Judy speak to the reclamation of Appalachian identity as a form of empowerment. The, the theater guys, but everybody at Apple Shop was um, pretty alternative in like a hillbilly way mm-hmm. and reclaiming hillbilliness and and um, and not being mainstream and middle class and. You know, not like the opposite of Lexington. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like they're they're more like the this, so they're in the second generation now. Like Elizabeth Barrett and Herbie's daughter is the development director for Apple Shop, <laughs> oh, okay. and she's like she's brilliant. She's like thirty, twenty eight or thirty. She was in song, and mm. she's like a real. Uh, she went to. Um, Hampshire, Hampshire College. Oh, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the second generation is coming on, but that first generation is just. Uh, uh, I don't know how to describe them, Appleship, but let me think about that. <laughs> uh, but definitely alternatives. Definitely choosing like I know they learned this and I did too. Like to redneck people, like if you if they are going to treat you like a redneck. Which sometimes they will, uh, like uh, you just give it to them right back, like worse, like stereotyping. So let me think of an example. Like sometimes, um, uh, like sometimes, like this is a made-up example, but um, somebody might say, uh, "Do you know how to? Here's an oyster fork. Do you want me to show you how to use it?" And then you'd say, well, honey, all forks just work the same, don't they? (laughs) 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 Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we call that rednecking them. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like, you're trying to put me down, but you're not. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. or you you might not realize you're putting me down, but you are. I think that gave it, not just take it and be like, oh, thank you. Mm -hmm. Around that same time. J.D. Vance's book, Hillbilly Elegy, rose to uh, the New York Times bestseller list. And so it was this, like, marriage of um, rural people being blamed for the election results when the conversation should have still been about wealth and wealth, the wealthy people who rose him to the top mm-hmm. um, and controlled the media markets and actually went out and voted for him. Um of the people in my county did not vote, but 80% of the people who did vote, which is obviously a very small amount, voted for Trump. And so the narrative has become that 80% of my county is for Trump, when obviously that's not fucking true. Mm. And Mm. so two friends of mine um, 
also around this time, um, I kind of left out that uh, people, you know, my, my local group of uh, <laughs> commies and anarchists and community organizers and uh, feminists, uh, there was probably about 15 of us, we were organizing to try to stop a new prison in our county. The only federal prison being proposed in the country right now is for Letcher County, Kentucky. And we spent about a year and a half, two years trying to stop that. But then this past Easter, they, uh, they, uh, released a record of decision that it was moving forward. It still, you know, hasn't been built and there are still some things that, um, we're trying to figure out to do, um, buying land and this and that but the Highlander Center and has has um, tried to support us all they could in this um, and it's been rough for people at Apple Shop to have to try to figure out how they distance themselves from their job um, you know when you in any community you, you don't have a private life and a professional life <laughs> it's not <laughs> really in small communities that's not really an option Throughout their histories, both Apple Shop and Highlighter have contended with outside forces impinging on and directly hindering their important work, whether through assumptions of authors like the one Tanya spoke to or through unlawful police action on Highlander, forcing relocation. Activists affiliated with these institutions have long battled outside forces in a variety of ways, such as spreading cultural work, Appalachian joy and awareness, and using scholarship. Here's Judy speaking about Helen Matthew Lewis, a potent force for good who worked to improve outside perspectives on Appalachia. Helen's role as both a scholar and community activist allowed her to speak out on and improve Appalachian people's living situations. You know what it was, um, what do you call that? What did they call it then? Is it like education when you work, service learning maybe or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Uh, so it was an exciting time to be there in 1975 because they were like new people coming in, these new programs getting started. So I was able to work, and they were all young and just out. And so like I worked with the environmental program, and we did. It was really great. He got we got the school bus, which was terrible, and we just drove all over. And he talked about how the geography had shaped like the coal industry and where there was coal and where there wasn't coal. And then, then I talked about we talked about some labor strikes and stuff, but it was hard to find out Appalachian history. Mm -hmm. So the guy that was in charge of Appalachian st studies said, you should, there's a woman over in Virginia that's really doing a lot with Appalachian studies and you should get in touch with her and her name is Helen Lewis. Mm -hmm. So that, so I had heard of her and then, and then once you knew her, it was like everybody that did anything Appalachian studies knew her and that, you know, anything that was good and, in Appalachian studies, uh, they would say, oh, I learned that from Helen Lewis. Mm. Um, so I was like, wow, she must be really super cool. But at, Virginia just seemed like a long way away. I was going to do a humanities program about Appalachia, and you have to have experts, Kentucky humanities program, you have to have an expert, somebody with PhD or something. And I was, I wasn't, my PhD's in 18th century, so I was like, I can't be the expert in Appalachian studies. So my friend at Union said, well, you should call Helen. So um, she gave me her number, and I called her, and I said, um, hey, uh, my name's Judy Jennings. I've heard a lot about you. And then she chit-chatted, and she's like, she said she'd heard of me too, but I knew she hadn't. Um, <laughs> you know, she asked all about my work, and she was, like, super, super engaged and everything, and as just right off the bat. And then I said, well, we're doing this humanities program. Can you come here? Um, and she was like, you know, I'd really like to do that, but 
I'm in the process of getting fired. <laughs> and they already took my office and moved it to a broom closet. And I don't think I should leave campus right now. <laughs> <laughs> but she didn't say that till I talked to her for like 20 minutes. <laughs> and I was like, really? And then uh, she said, you call me back now. And maybe I can do another time, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I hung up and I told my friend, I was like, she's getting fired. And he's like, oh, this was the second time. Second time she'd been fired. <laughs> yeah, from a different school. Oh, wow. Yeah, so um, he's like, oh, we knew she might get better. You know, he, he wasn't surprised. The Pittston strike was the last, one of the last, it was the UMW was losing, everybody knew they were losing members and stuff, and so it was kind of like, it turned out to be a last stand, and I think we kind of knew that at the time, but that was uh, just over the boundary in Virginia, uh, where the strike location was, but not that far, and so they had a solidarity camp there, and uh, Bread and Puppets came down, and women were there cooking, and it was like, uh, it was sort of like Occupy, but it was a strike support so Helen was really involved in that and we went I went down there with her on on some of the actions uh, and it was civil disobedience so it was bringing the labor union up with Martin Luther King and the civil disobedience on purpose unconsciously it's sort of like for people's campaign so one of my friends plays banjo um, for them and she lived she needed a ride to the strike and she was going to do civil disobedience, but I couldn't do civil disobedience because I didn't have time to get arrested. <laughs> uh, but her and Helen got arrested together, so the same day. So they sat down in the road and blocked the scabs. Mm-hmm. And so, and then you know they wouldn't. They had to drag him off, and so dragging off Helen at that time in the sixties, that got our cameras going, and you know she was the picture person. So I was just was there that day because I was giving my friend a ride. <laughs> I do. Um, I mean, I think a lot has changed, and it's not changed for the better. You know, we um, we really we, well. We lost uh, the union in the mines, and that just left miners with really no. They have no support. Um, you know, no one covering their back really, and so I think that really caused them to identify more with the companies than they ever had in the past so that what was good for the company was perceived as being good for them which really led to this um, acceptance of the concept of the war on coal that you know that Obama and the Democrats were really trying to you know run them out of um, jobs and work and kill the coal industry and they just didn't they didn't have it any other narrative coming you know that one that they could trust so it you know it has been um in the time i've lived in west virginia and eastern kentucky it's gone from uh uh where folks were registered as democrats and voted democratic and there were been a fair number of, you know, populist kind of democratic politicians at times to where, you know, we're um, overwhelmingly supportive of Trump and Bevan, I guess. And, you know, um, so that's really 
disheartening and discouraging um, and you know takes makes the makes Appalachia less lovable <laughs> I guess but there are lot you know there are lots of reasons for why people feel that way right. and they've you know really been abandoned by um, you know many feel by both political parties mm -hmm. and Trump wasn't he was something else altogether yeah. um, but you know getting back to this like friends of coal propaganda campaign you know um, as I was like going home for summers um, during college I, I began like hearing this rhetoric more and seeing these like bumper stickers and you know I was really becoming radicalized learning about the actual history of the coal of coal companies of the coal industry in Appalachia and that and and you know I took I remember taking a class on, on demographics and um that was the first time I had like big numbers in my head to form a picture of like health care and poverty and struggle of people in the region connected to you know literally physically um, correlated with how much coal is mined in their county. You know what I mean? Like your proximity to a coal mine has everything to do with your health and ability to make money and be happy. They thought that fighting the company was um, against their best interest. Mm -hmm. And so now, 15 years later, we are uncovering and learning more about this like unbelievable surge in black lung in younger and younger miners because they've been working in such poor working conditions because of this rhetoric about how important company loyalty is. Oh, and so those things are not those things are not separate and I don't even think we you know have have um, we haven't even drawn out this timeline of how this happened some of my fondest childhood memories are being in my mom it was called Dean's truck stop my mom Dean ran it um, and my mom worked there when I was really young but not when I got older but I would get off the bus there sometimes and she had a jukebox. And so there was lots of just like joyful memories of dancing um, and hanging out with people who were working in the mines. Um, my mom used to tell the story. This was a little before I was born, but it, it when coal was booming up in, this would be up in Straight Creek, kind of mm -hmm. around the Bell County, Harlan County line. Um, the company would actually bring a helicopter down from up the road. Like, I mean, it's a pretty far, once you have to drive up to the top of the mountain, it's, it's quite a ways, but they would land a helicopter in the big bottom behind my mamaw's restaurant to, and then load in like 50 lunches that they had ordered. Wow. And so my mom would like pack these lunches out to this helicopter. And so that was a pretty wild, weird story. Like those were the kind of weird stories I remember hearing about, like the, the big things that, you know, surprised me and stuck with me about coal mining. But my mom's got all these stories about me sitting in miners' laps and trying to eat their food and shit. <laughs> it's just weird. Um, but I also have memories of, of union battles where my uncle would talk about um, scab trucks coming to his restaurant, to his, uh, not the restaurant, but to the gas station because they would have like wrenches stuck in their tires and just all kinds of shit that they had like where they the trucks had been attacked uh, while they were trying to cross a picket line. This is a land we cherish, a land of liberty. How can Americans deny all many qualities? 
Our Constitution says you can and Christians you should know. Jesus died that morning for all mankind to know. Heed the call, Americans all, side by equal side. As Tanya illustrates, perspective, openness, and storytelling are deeply intertwined. Through retelling stories and opening them up to multiple compassionate perspectives, movement workers have begun to change the narrative of Appalachian peoples. Empowerment rests on storytelling and on representation, which we will speak to in our next episode on the women of Highlander and Appleshop movement work. Students bound in jail still left their heads and sing. We'll travel on to freedom like songbirds on the wing. Heed the call, Americans all. Side by equal side, brother, sit in dignity, sister, sit in pride. We at Rad South would like to thank Pam McMichael, Judith Jennings, Tanya Turner, and Mimi Pickering for sharing their stories. Our classmates Natalie, Hannah, and Bridie for sharing their oral histories with us and for their work behind the scenes. Kate Fossil of the Anne Braden Institute for her leadership, Candy Carawan for lending her folk music, and Susan Williams with all the Highlander team for their help with this project. <laughs>